prepare to experience the strongest radio allowable by law. Secrets will be revealed. Myths dispelled. From the studio gym where excuses never apply. It's Superhuman Radio with your host, Carl Lenore. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Superhuman Radio. You know, we got this new camera. So usually I can only see like from here up. Now you can see my torso. It's pretty cool. This is a um, a bear tooth. These are one of a kind. I had one made for my son, Chase, and one for me uh, commemorating our first uh, hunting uh, trip about uh, three years ago. And so I never see it when I wear it because I'm cut off. I look like a talking head usually. Uh, we have an interesting discussion today about time-restricted eating. A lot of people um, know what time-restricted eating is, and when it comes to metabolic uh, things, it does some wonderful stuff. But there's a lot of people who wonder if it impairs uh, muscle protein synthesis. There's a lot of guys, you know, the old bodybuilder diets, you eat every three hours. I did this. I mean, when I was a powerlifter, I did this. I, I ate every three hours, and then I even woke up in the middle of the night, usually when I went to pee, I had a protein shake in the middle of the night, which we know it destroys autophagy, like stupidest thing I could have done. But we all wanted the most muscle we could build, the quickest. And then uh, time-restricted feeding came in on the scene. And in fact, I did the first show ever uh, on time-restricted feeding with uh, Dr. Mark McCarty. He actually performed this study at the uh, uh, some hospital in New Mexico, and in Mexico City. The second study he did at UCLA was rodents. That led to every other day fasting and books like that. I think that was 2007. And um, ever since then, people have been experimenting with, thriving on. Some people can't do it, can't do it. But the question has always been out there, what does it do for those of us who think muscle is important? And we're going to discuss that today with Dr. Evelyn Parr. Before we get started, uh, I have to thank our title sponsor, Legendary Foods. Uh, makers of the sweet rolls. If you haven't tried these, you're missing out. You know when you walk through the airport and you see that Cinnabon and you smell it, it's so good, but you know you can't eat it because it's pure crap. Well, Legendary took the Cinnabon and made it healthy. Uh, one gram of sugar, uh, 20 grams of high-quality dairy protein, five net carbs that come in cinnamon, but also chocolate and wild berry. Pop them in the microwave for like 10 seconds you will swear you're eating a Cinnabon. It's fantastic, and there's no guilt. Go to shrnetwork.biz slash legendary. Use the code SHR10. If you have children in the house, order twice as much. Send them to school with them. All their friends will be jealous. They'll think they're eating crap, but they're really not. Uh, and they'll be hard to keep in the house, I promise. So check them out. Show them some love. Now, without further delay, welcome to the show, Dr. Evelyn Parr. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Carl. How are you? Wonderful, wonderful. So um, talk about yourself first, uh, the university that you're affiliated with, your your lab and all that sort of stuff, and where your core interests are. So I'm at Australian Catholic University, which is in Melbourne, Australia, so currently sitting at, at 6 a.m. in the morning here, uh, bright and early. Uh, our university is a, um, a large teaching university, but has a, a big research focus as, as well. We have a lot of um, nursing students and education uh, teaching 
uh, graduates. Uh, and our uh, research institute is interested in 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 health research and in that's health of both an athlete and health of an individual in terms of healthy aging. Um, I sit more on the healthy aging side of, of the spectrum and um, focus most of my research on individuals with obesity, individuals with prediabetes, individuals with type 2 diabetes, uh, and a large focus, obviously, on uh, eating patterns uh, as well as what we're eating. So not losing those decades of uh, dietetic knowledge that we know makes a difference, but also thinking a little bit more outside of the box than the current dietary guidelines, which just mainly focus on what we eat and starting to think a little bit more about when we eat and how that's contributing to metabolic diseases. Um, I'm an exercise scientist by by background um, and exercise is obviously a very important factor in, in my research. It's just not always the modified factor, um, but we need to, to consider it. There are health promoting behaviors. When you do change dietary intake, sometimes you change exercise behaviors as well. Um, so that's where my, where my research has sort of progressed to over the last sort of five or six years. You know, it's, it's funny. We, we talk about metabolic, uh, disorders like it's just another silo, you know, heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, endocrinology. But the reality is that, um, you probably could, look at all these other diseases and trace them back to uh, being metabolically broken to, to begin with, right? We know that people with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, tend to have cancer. They tend to uh, be prone to Alzheimer's disease, everything. So really, I, I feel like, you know, if you're just trying to fix the domino fifth one down – but not going to the very first one that's starting the cascade. Aren't we wasting our time? Aren't we? Shouldn't we all be focusing on metabolic derangement? I agree. From a research perspective, that is that is difficult to do. Like it is difficult to measure everything and and say you know what it is that's having the effect. Uh, so I, I definitely agree. How, how we actually trace that back, I don't, I don't know. I mean, type 2 diabetes was the old person's disease, right? right? It's the pancreas running out of the ability to produce insulin in, in the manner that is required, uh, due to the stimulus, which is typically eating. Um, that, that's no longer the case. It's, it's, there's still the people that are developing type 2 diabetes when they're in their late seventies. 80s and and now we're having i guess the stigma that oh they've caused that well no they haven't their body is just not the you know their pancreas isn't supposed to live that long you know and we didn't used to live much more than you know 40 50 years old until medicine improved and and we you know improved the longevity of many people's lives uh the issue is we're having people with these really strong metabolic diseases a lot earlier in life and the interventions that I do are not prevention. They're, I guess, management from a, mm-hmm. a way. Um, I, I don't, I, I have done weight loss interventions. Um, everybody is working on, on weight loss. I've, I've shifted away from that mainly because I know the evidence of, of exercise for not causing weight loss, but for causing many other health benefits that mm-hmm. are going to improve, uh, overall metabolic health without changing in weight. Uh, and to me, time-restricted eating kind of falls under that category of right. it, it's not going to be a big weight loss intervention, but it might have some pretty potent metabolic outcomes. 
Do you know when, like my grandparents called it sugar. Oh, so-and-so's got sugar. Like, in other words, this was type 2 diabetes. Do we do we have any feel for when type 2 diabetes became a, a wide-scale problem with the population around the years that it started? Because I'm, I'm thinking exercise is an artificial replacement for something we used to do naturally, was work hard all day long. Absolutely. I don't have the, I don't have off the top of my head the, the year range. My gut feeling is it's when obese, the obesity, uh, rates started climbing. And as you say, you know, when we're talking about cancer, obesity, type 2 diabetes, it's really the chicken or the egg. Which disease comes first? They're all interrelated. Um, and the predisposition to develop one means that you've got a higher risk of, of developing another. So, um, my gut feeling is that it happened at a similar time as we, we've seen those increasing rates of obesity, um, simply because, yeah, metabolic health is, is related. Um, so talk about your research. Why this study? What, was, what, what, what made this the next study that we needed to understand? It, it came about actually because my my boss was at a conference uh, and presenting sort of the accumulation of, of our work because um, he's a little bit more well-known than I am uh, so far. And someone in the audience said, like, like I hear you, I hear this, you know, this timing of eating is really important, but we know that protein stimulates the muscle. And we have been telling athletes for decades, you know, have protein well spaced out and for a long time over the day to make sure you're maintaining your muscle mass. Because if you're not eating protein, then you fall down into the protein breakdown side of the equation of catabolic intake. Yeah, protein synthesis, protein breakdown. We're, we're n- n- navigating that through throughout the day uh, in general. And if you do not stimulate the muscle, you don't make more muscle. You, you, you tend to lose muscle. You know, mm-hmm. we're starting to lose um, our muscle mass from, you know, some would say age 30, you know, age 40 onwards, mm-hmm. and we're starting to decrease, you know, and, and our total muscle mass. And it's really hard to build it back. It's possible in some ways, but it's really hard to look build it back. And when we talk about dietary interventions, we're often losing uh, lean mass mm-hmm. when we lose weight. Mm-hmm. And a, propor- a proportion of that lean mass will be skeletal muscle and, and muscle mass. It won't be all of it, but it'll be a proportion. And so if we're creating this environment of time-restricted eating where we're limiting the time window of which people are eating, that's of real concern for people who have limited lean mass or who are not moving enough. Are we actually making it worse? Like is time restricted eating bad? Because everybody else is saying it's good. Everyone's saying it's great for weight loss. It's good for, you know, many different other uh, metabolic health outcomes, but no one was really thinking of the muscle. And I guess that's the perspective we came at it from of, is it going to decrease muscle protein synthesis, you know, our most sensitive measure of the muscle building process. And if so, that's not good and we need to consider that. So you know what's really fascinating? It comes to mind first right away. I did a show last year, year before, where we looked at, you know, autophagy, there's a baseline autophagy and then it spikes under certain conditions like during fasting, autophagy goes up. But um, there's a study out there that shows that when you fast, even for just three hours, the improvement in autophagy actually improves protein synthesis when you do stimulate. So 
you know, I, I and I kind of feel like that kind of go, that's like this, the the uh, the the two pieces of bread for the sandwich. Your study and that study says, hey, don't be afraid, don't fear the reaper. No, don't 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 be afraid of of fasting. You're not going to lose your muscle that quickly. I guess the caveat for our study is we provided all the food to the individuals and we made sure that protein intakes were a little bit above adequate, right? So one gram per kilo of body mass. Now that's low if we're talking to anybody who's lifting yeah. weights in the gym. They'd yeah. be like, I need to be having two, 2.4 grams. Um, yeah. but for the everyday, per- yeah, for the everyday person, you know, that, that's enough. The RDA is, is, or the recommended dietary, um, amounts is, is 0.8 grams per kilo body mass um so ours was all all meals provided it was at one gram so we know it's it's more than adequate uh amounts of protein and sometimes when people do cut things out it sometimes it is the protein foods so that that's you know when we're talking about time restricted eating in a everyday real life setting there's still some question marks i don't think our study answers everything but we have to start in a very rigorous manner uh, to to do this and use this the methodology, the deuterated water methodology that we did use um, to to answer that question or you know, answer that first part of the question. Okay, so let's talk about the study. How was the study designed, and and what did we learn? This was an opportunistic uh, study, Carl. I actually had a colleague who was looking at alternate day fasting. Uh, and comparing that to chronic energy restriction. Now, the alternate day fasting, in my perspective, falls under the intermittent fasting umbrella. You're trying to reduce your energy intake over, over a week by, you know, doing something on, on a couple of days rather than every day. Uh, so her question was muscle protein synthesis, um, for alternate day fasting compared to chronic energy restriction. And we know that when people chronically energy restrict or, or cut calories, there, there can be an impact on muscle protein synthesis mm-hmm. with from Amy Hector, you know, Stu Phillips's lab. Uh, so she was going to run this study and had a control group. And I sort of thought, well, why don't we add that other group, that time-restricted eating group? We've already got a group that's going to be eating for 12 hours. Let's add the time-restricted eating arm and create a separate research question. So we've never compared the alternate day fasting chronic energy restriction groups to my time-restricted eating group. It was always intended to be separate, mm-hmm. but we used the same control group. Um, so I, I'm very lucky uh, to my colleague, Dr. Emra Kao, who's now um, at uh, Wageningen University in the Netherlands. I've pronounced that wrong, I know, every time. But anyway, <laughs> um, that's where she is. Um, and her work will be coming out hopefully in the, in the next few months. Um, on, on that other part of the question. But we were able to add that time-restricted eating arm to, to answer that question we got at the conference of, well, you know, we've been promoting, you know, protein regularly spaced along a long period of the day for, for many years. Now you're telling us to restrict it to eight hours. And I think one of the misnomers of, of fasting research as well as in terms of time-restricted eating, we, you know, we talk about the 16-8. The you're not actually fasting for 16 hours. You're just not eating for 16 hours because once you've eaten, your body's taking right. at least three hours to process that meal before you're actually into the more, you know, fasting mechanisms towards autophagy, etc. So when you're limiting to eight hours, you're actually, you know, that's your eating window, but you're not fasting for another, another three hours. So again, something that I think gets missed along the way right. with, with time restricted eating. Um, so, 
we looked at a group of men that had overweight or obesity, so they had a BMI that was above uh, 25. Uh, we tried to get as a homogenous group as, as possible. Um, that's difficult with humans, but uh, we recruited yeah, those individuals from here in Melbourne and started them on a, what we call a lead-in diet. So trying to get everybody on, we got everybody mm-hmm. onto the same foods for, for three days in a row um, to, to make sure we're in a, a similar state. Uh, and then we started the um, intervention where we use deuterated water. So a methodology where they're ingesting a, a heavy water that we can then measure in body water tissues that gives us heavy water. Like, indicate- de- did you say deuterated water? Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the methodology that we use. So we measure then the incorporation of that label mm-hmm. into the body water. So we measure saliva, uh, and we measure the other, uh, plasma. <laughs> I was like, we didn't take urine. Um, yeah, plasma <laughs> and plasma and saliva samples. And then we take a muscle biopsy sample after we've initially, um, loaded that person and then, for 10 days, they completed the intervention. So when we're talking about um, my arm of the study, the time-restricted eating and control groups were given exactly the same foods, um, exactly the same amounts of foods. These are obviously different people. It's did you calculate a eucaloric diet for each of them? We did. And interestingly, I mean, not trying to give away too many of the results, but we, we underfed them. They So both groups lost uh, body weight in that 10 days. Um, so we didn't quite meet their energy needs, but we, it wasn't different between the two groups. Mm-hmm. So we underfed them in, in both groups, mm-hmm. but what their lunchtime was the, the same time, their, their dinner and breakfast and the time restricted eating was two hours earlier and, uh, two hours later. So mm-hmm. breakfast being two hours later than, mm-hmm. than the control group mm-hmm. and dinner being two hours earlier than the control group mm-hmm. and the time-restricted eating. So we're comparing the 12 hours versus the eight hours of eating. Did you monitor glucose control? Well, first of all, were these diets uh, ratios of macronutrients or were they more uh, low-carb? or How about how, how did you determine what to use? Because those are going to skew results too, right? Well, those are going to implicate your results. I'm right. not sure about skew, but implicate. Yeah. Okay. So it, it was, it, I guess you would call it a, a, a healthy generic diet that had adequate protein, 1.0 grams uh, per kilo of body mass mm-hmm. and the same macronutrient profile at the three meals, um, which doesn't always happen because breakfast it, well, here in Australia tends to be higher in carbohydrate. Dinner tends to be higher in protein, um, but we had it reasonably spread um, throughout the, the day. Mm-hmm. And so, again, so they had one one gram of protein per kilo. What about their carbohydrates? Was that like 20% of their calories, 30%? Of, and then what about fat? Oh, good question. I, I'm pretty sure we should have been at about 50% carbohydrate, but I actually can't remember off the, t- off the top of my head. Yeah, no, um, no, I, I, very, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right because that's like the standard yeah, government-driven diet, right? It's 50%, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 50%. Yeah, 20% fat, 30% protein, 30% 50%. fat. Yeah. 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 And, and a little bit more energy at dinner, a little bit less at breakfast. Cause that's what people do. Um, I, I like the studies that do 33, 33, 33 in terms of in, energy, you know, evenly spread over the three meals, but that's not exactly how we eat. Right. Nor do we just eat three meals. Most people have a snack in there. So again, we're modifying yeah. that. You know, part of the behavior. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a real diet. It's a real diet. You're not like going to put them on a, a 
an elimination diet, which in and of itself will have its own effect. Uh, it's a regular diet. It's the way people really eat. Well, and I guess the, the biggest limitation in the time-restricted eating um, is that is that how people eat when they do time-restricted eating? Some people do naturally reduce their energy intake on time-restricted eating, and that's where the weight loss aspect, I think, or the majority of the weight loss comes from is because you're not intentionally telling someone to restrict their energy intake. It's just a consequence of monitoring or modifying the timing. So, oh, you can't eat past seven. Oh, well, you know, that extra bowl of ice cream and those two beers that you were going to have, they don't fit in that time window. That's a, that's a heck of a lot of energy that's then been, or calories, as you would say, that's then been, then dropped from the diet. And it possibly changes diet quality as well, because we know not many people drink beer from seven o'clock in the morning. Um, it's typically an end of day food as is ice cream. I mean, there are some people, no doubt that eat ice cream throughout the, the day, <laughs> but you know, we have a lot of foods that are, that are time of day foods. And that's another, I guess, when time restricted eating is just focusing on the clock time or the number of hours, mm-hmm. then you're not directing someone that, that you can't eat this food, um, which in my experience creates a, a, a cycle of really wanting that food mm-hmm. and, and creating a, an unhealthy association mm-hmm. with it um, mm-hmm. rather than just, yeah, b- being a bit more everything in moderation. And uh, did you look at uh, hormonal assays and, uh, and, or, I mean, I'm sure you looked at insulin, right? We did look at insulin, but we didn't have these people, our participants in the lab for more than taking fasting samples. Okay. So um, you bear with me. They, we use glucose monitors because they're the continuous glucose yeah, monitors they're because they're great. You yeah. can you can pop them on someone, you can get a lot of data, but it's only giving you one side of the story. It's not telling you insulin if that that meal then created a large bolus of insulin right. to be released into the system that stayed really high for a really long time. And this is this is a this is a huge frustration of mine when when doctors take blood sugar and go, Oh, you're fine, but their their pancreas may be at hundred percent duty to keep them in that zone, and then they crash. Without taking, uh, what did I used to say? I used to say, by checking blood sugar without testing insulin at the same time, it's like trying to determine how fast a car is going by looking at the distance between the gas pedal and the floorboard. You can't. We're on the same page. Yeah, I mean, and, and I still don't understand why doctors don't do that. It just baffles me. Because it's a very, it's a more difficult test you can test blood glucose. You can just prick someone's finger and take a strip and, and measure it right then and there. You mm-hmm. can't do that with insulin. No, you got to send anyway. it out. You got to send it out. Yeah. Whoever, whoever's work, whoever's working on that, like this, there's, there's some money to be made there once we can, you know, measure insulin very, very quickly. Um, so I, I hesitate to say that, you know, we didn't see any changes in, in insulin, but we only measured fasting insulin. Right. So you, you, it's very difficult to to move that when you don't have a, a meal response test, right? So if you can't keep someone the entire day and actually look at what's happening over a 24-hour period yeah. and take bloods overnight, because that's interesting as well, then you, you can give them a meal test and look at, you know, what's happening with glucose, but also what's happening with Well, insulin. yeah, and, and if you had um, a CGM on them, you were able to see responses to various meals, right? Because they kept a food diary. They said, oh, I ate these things then you look at the cgm and you go oh my god look look at the way the blood sugar spiked yeah so that's that's well we gave them we gave we gave them the same foods and we asked them the time to eat it so the cgm also gave us a little bit of that because they were free living um did you actually eat that did you actually eat your meal at the right time you know at the right time 
Um, and our glucose responses showed that our control group was very good. It looks exactly the same from the lead-in diet to the intervention. And then when we look at time-restricted eating, we see a different profile. We see it's the same breakfast meal, but we see a lower peak and a lower area under the curve to that breakfast meal. Um, we see it, it is a different profile, mm-hmm. but what we don't see is what's happening with insulin. And we have a previous study where we used a very similar population, uh, different research question, still looking at the muscle, but more interested in what's happening with metabolites uh, across the 24-hour period. So we were taking muscle biopsies uh, every four uh, every four hours throughout 24 hours. So they had six Ouch. biopsies through that 24 hours. From, the, from the quadricep? Where were they taking it? From the quad? Yeah. 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 From the quad. Yeah. From the quad. Um, and so we we're able to, you know, see what's happening over 24 hours. And we had 24 hour insulin measures in that study. Oh. And we know from that that we, we don't, or those individuals, insulin levels didn't drop down to basal levels between meals because the meals are closer together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is more circulating insulin, but our, the measure of what's happening over 24 hours, the 24-hour area under the curve was not different. So they had these big, three big peaks when you had the three separate meals mm-hmm. and three big peaks of insulin. But when you had the, the meals closer together, the insulin concentrations were generally a little bit higher sure. throughout that that eating sure. window, but the eating window is shorter. So that's offset by the insulin being lower throughout the day. Now, did that happen in our in our um in, your study. in this study? I don't know because we don't have a twenty four hour insulin you know monitor mm-hmm. yet. <laughs> I say yet because I hope somebody's going. Yeah, to do someone it will me, come out. With it. Hopes it, some someone yeah. will. Uh, so it's fast. It would be fascinating to know what ketone levels were because the more metabolically flexible a person is, the sooner they'll start to produce ketone bodies. And it would be fascinating to know that as well because ketones. While, you know, everybody talks about how they are an alternate fuel source, they're also a signaling molecule. They, they, they tell the body to do certain things, like autophagy, like, like the presence of ketone bodies tends to ramp up autophagy. Um, and we saw that in one of Dominic D'Agostino's studies, uh, where they actually fed somebody and then gave them ketone esters, and they didn't see the drop in autophagy that they would have seen post-prandial. So, you know, ketone bodies are interesting. Would you look at those next time you do some research? I mean, they have they have take-home ketone testers now, you know. Totally, totally. I just think you need to be a bit longer. You probably need to be a bit longer fasting and you probably need to be a bit lower carbohydrate to have, to have an effect. Um, I mean, it would be interesting to look at. My gut feeling would be that it wouldn't have a large effect. Um, but I don't actually know that. I stop eating at 6 p.m. And now I've changed. I, I so so um, my window of, of eating is slightly longer right now. But typically, if I stop eating at six p.m., I'll wake up with a point nine to one point two millimole of, of ketones. So I, and I'm I've you know I've been doing this for decades now. So my body just produces ketones very quickly now. And that, that I would think that that's an indication of somebody who's a little bit metabolically flexible. Yeah, metabolically healthy. Mm-hmm. Like I think that, as you say, you know, ketones is is not uh, always a, a negative fuel as it used to be perceived to be. Um, it's not something, yeah, we've we've focused on on a lot, but um, definitely something to to consider in, in our future studies for sure. So let's talk about protein synthesis before we go into this break, because that's what we're really here for. 
and protein is the protein synthetic response um, given that these people weren't exercising or were they lifting weights or anything like that? Okay, so no, that means that the protein synthetic response was driven solely by mTOR. Yeah, by the protein intake signaling uh, leucine, exactly. Yeah, high high quality leucine. Yeah. So, did you? What did you see? Do you see like, oh my god, they don't respond as quick, or did the protein synthetic response just kick right in like it was supposed to? So, when we're using the method of the deuterated water, we're looking at it over a prolonged, you know, the the entire intervention. So we can't say it's a result of of one meal or the or the other. Um, we didn't see a difference. It is the bottom line. We didn't see a difference in the muscle protein synthesis between the time restricted eating and the control group. And and one reviewer sort of said, "Oh, well, it, it's only it's only four hours difference." Um, and sure, had our control group been eating over a longer period it would there be more difference maybe um but it it when we did the power calculations we would have had to have had 300 odd people in each group to have seen a difference um so if there's a difference there it's very 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 small um but the caveat being is it's compared to the same amount of food. It's compared to the same amount of protein and would that happen in a real lifetime restricted eating Maybe not always. Um, and we're also talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, only men. Um, we only use men in our study. Um, that's not what I would have liked to have done. We didn't have the funding to have had, you know, both sexes. Is it having a greater effect for women? We don't know. Um, we'll leave that low-hanging fruit for somebody else to, to look at. Um, but we were, I guess, mildly surprised and, and pleased that we didn't see an effect in this intervention um, because we don't want time-restricted eating to cause impairments to muscle synthesis. We don't want people to be overly worried about losing muscle. muscle. Right. Um, yeah. So so this, the takeaway of this is it does not appear that time-restricted eating with a, an 8-16 window um, will blunt protein synthetic response to people like me who are interested in continuing to build muscle. And, 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 and I, interesting and maintaining and maintaining muscle. Like, you know, we when as we get older, you know, we're less we're less building and we're more maintaining. And that's what's really important because apart from moving it or consuming protein to, to stimulate it, there's no other way to to help our muscle. There's no mm-hmm. drug. There's, there's no magic cure. It, it is simply making sure that you're eating enough protein and making sure that you're moving enough to, to use it. What about anabolics? When you start to use things that are anabolic in nature, testosterone, men have testosterone, women have very little amounts of testosterone. Yeah, and I guess that's the interrelationship with what's happening um, with with menopause that we often see such large body composition changes when the hormones for, for females, you know, change significantly um i I mean i have no experience with with anabolics um in terms of muscle protein synthesis and i'm sure there are many other people that do so i'll leave that for you to find another guest to to answer um but my i guess my simple answer is it's it's move it or or lose it and when we're talking about people needing to also lose weight or thinking they need to lose weight or their doctors prescribing them to lose weight in this phase of their life we don't want to be prescribing an intervention like time-restricted eating that's then going to have other deleterious yeah, effects on I the muscle. Agree. So that, you know, that's 
we're, we're confident in this, uh, protocol where there's enough protein and where the energy is matched that over 10 days, we don't see, uh, a, a blunting of muscle protein synthesis of that muscle turnover situation. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk more about your other research in metabolic disorders. And uh, we'll have some laughs because we have some good stuff to talk about. Stay tuned. You're watching and listening to Superhuman Radio. We'll be right back. There are lots of concerns about food supply today. That's why you need White Oak Pastures. White Oak Pastures will deliver food right to your doorstep. You don't even have to go out and be disappointed by shopping in grocery stores. The finest beef, pork, lamb, duck, and more can be found at White Oak Pastures. And now they even have seafood. And best of all, White Oak Pastures has a negative carbon footprint, which means that you don't have to feel guilty for eating your ribeye. Go to shrnetwork.biz slash white oak and use the code superhuman to save 15% off. Millions of people know that shrewd food is the smartest way to snack. Ever get that craving for crunchy snacks but don't want to eat all those empty carbs? Well, instead of puffed corn or wheat like most snacks, shrewd food puffs protein powder. This gives these crazy efficient macros. 2 grams of carbs, 14 grams of protein. That's as high as 67% protein and with only 90 calories. So knock out the carbs but keep the amazing flavor and crunch you're looking for. Shrewd food is now available at Walmart and Sprouts. Or go to shrnetwork.biz slash shrewdfood and use the code SHR25 for 25% off your order. I would easily say that I am the hugest proponent you will ever meet to doing anything that will improve the quality of my sleep. And that's because sleep is linked to just about every metabolic disorder we see in our population today. One of the easiest things you can do to improve the quality of your sleep is to get a pillow that can be shaped into the exact form factor that allows you to get your best night's sleep. And that is my my pillow. I've been sleeping with my pillow for a few years now, and I can tell you that when I have to travel and stay in hotels, I don't get a good night's sleep because I don't have my pillow with me. Right now, you can save up to 60% off of everything offered to improve the quality of your sleep at shrnetwork.biz slash mypillow when you use the code SHR. Or you can call toll-free 800-889-4938. And remember to use code SHR to save up to 60% off of everything at their website. Great sleep upgrades you on virtually every level, body fat, muscle mood, brain function, and countless other ways. But taking melatonin alone isn't the answer. Thanks to a brand new sleep formula developed by my friends at Bioptimizers, you can experience the best night's sleep ever. Sleep Breakthrough is a delicious sleep drink that supports your natural melatonin production and relaxation without creating a dependency so you can have the best night's sleep on demand. It targets five different sleep pathways to give you the best sleep ever. And best of all, you'll wake up feeling rested and rejuvenated so that you can have the best day possible. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to sleepbreakthrough.com slash SHR and use the code SHR10 for 10% off. Plus, you can unlock special gifts with the value of at least $20. This is a limited time offer, so go to sleepbreakthrough.com forward slash SHR right now. Spit that out right now. This is the Superhuman Channel. Welcome back. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about metabolic disorders in general because we had some fun conversations before the show started. Um, so the, the idea of moving more – well, first of all, 
I said people give themselves type 2 diabetes and that's the way a lot of people look at it. But you really don't look at it that way, do you? Uh, it, there is definitely a proportion of what is happening that is the environment, I think, and the genetic uh, component. So there are some people that are wired uh, more towards having uh, metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes diabetes and as we have more people that have type 2 diabetes that are you know producing other humans that then go on to grow up we, we're you know creating that environment we know there's a family history um so to say to somebody oh well it's just all that you've done um i think is is tough and especially in an environment where we've got food all the time we don't have to move very much and we're saying well you've caused this disease you've got it now you've got to deal with it that's a it's a i think it's a bit rich. I think it's a bit tough. Um, and no doubt that once somebody does know that they've got type two diabetes and it's not a disease that is very easily diagnosable, there are a lot of the symptoms that can go unnoticed for quite some time, meaning that you could be quite far down the road before you're actually diagnosed. It's then onto the individual to manage it. Like it then becomes solely the individual because nobody's changing the environment to improve things for people with type 2 diabetes. The, the person has to, to do that themselves alongside all of the, the stigma of, oh, well, you've done it, so, you, you you know, it's it's all on you sort of a situation. So I just, I, I agree there is a component that is the individual, but there is, I also believe, a large component that is genetics and the environment. So... Um, this is, this is the discussion that gets me in trouble and I try not to be insulting, not to you. I mean, when, when I'm talking to people, I just had this discussion. So there's a, a interview with Leslie Stahl going around the internet where this physician says obesity is clearly exclusively genetic. And I, I'd like to kind of parse this discussion for a second. We, with the discovery of the thrifty gene, which was what, like 10 years ago? Oh, that's a, I'm not fat because of the, I eat too much. I'm fat because, uh, the thrifty gene. I would submit that all of us have some form of thrifty gene to have made it this far, uh, through evolution, right? Because we are, if, if we, if we weren't thrifty or if we didn't, um, uh, really highly utilize what we eat, we would fall over and become food for an animal because we wouldn't be able to, oh, I haven't eaten in three hours. Boom, I'm dead. So there's that, right? So, and I understand when people say, well, genetically, some of us are predisposed to put on weight faster than others. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say bullshit. (laughs) I'm sorry. And I'll tell you why I say that. Um, no one wants to hear the discussion about, like, you can't, okay, this is what gets me in trouble, and I'm going to apologize ahead of time, but the audience has heard me say this a thousand times. There were no fat people in prisoner of war, of war camps, none. There wasn't one guy, Joe, like, they, they starving, they're starving us all, but Joe's 275 pounds, I don't understand it. Oh, well, he genetically makes fat out of air, right? So while, and, and, and the other side of my argument is, we don't just get our genes from our parents. We get the foods we love from our parents. The reason obese mothers give birth to obese little children 
is is because their lifestyle, the foods they choose, and the frequency of food, and they don't move, and that's not genetic. Okay, now you can punish me. I, I you can call me an <laughs> you can call me an asshole. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, I don't know any part of modern society that is like a prisoner of war camp, and I think that if you did put everybody in a society like that, you, you would have a, a, a lot leaner population. Is right. that healthy? I mean, those people weren't healthy. We're not talking about the prisoners of wars being, you no. know, having low BMIs and that being healthy, right? right. Like, and right. we put a lot on. You know, I, I've made comment before that there are a lot of people that don't like BMI. Um, it, it works as the population and analysis it doesn't work on an individual level and i often yes. go back yes to, because i'm, thir- know, I'm, I'm my bmi is like 34 right now so and i'm, I'm not obese yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah it, well, exactly and and metabolically healthy um but, but we know in terms of body shape right if you go back to you you don't just spit out a a human that has you know that is lean tall and has no hips from a, 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 you know two parents that are, are shorter and, and wider of, of stature um and the misnomer of oh well i've just got big bones i mean we do body composition scans all the time the the biggest um you know bone density that's contributing to a skeleton i've seen is, is five kilos you know and you know i'm at 1.6 kilos of bone it's not it is a large difference in terms of total bone mm-hmm. uh mass but in terms of adding on to your composition it's it's not very it's 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 not really making that much of a of a difference um sorry but but you you just you can't escape yeah what what is happening in in early childhood how you're how you're provided with food what food you're given um but also the the body shape that that you were born from or you were genetically, you know, came from. I mean, there are people who, and I mean, Kevin Hall's research, you know, demonstrates this pretty well, I think, or at least he's been talking about it, that you can overfeed lean people and, and they don't gain weight. Like there is something about those people mm-hmm. that, are, that are lean that are, you know, because we know there's a lot of people that will fit that low BMI category that are not eating healthy, right. that are not moving enough. They, Something is happening in their body to, to enable that. We're also really, uh, and I often talk about this, we're afraid of being hungry. Oh, you're hungry? You should eat something. Like that, that is our mentality. Yeah, of, eating, like, eating, oh, you're, oh, love. you're fasting? Oh, that's yeah. weird. Like, right. why, why would you do that to yourself? Right. Um, and, you know, it's just, I mean, I have young children, you know, we're feeding them all the time. Oh, you're hungry? Do you want to eat something? Um, we're scared of being hungry and we're overriding some of our signals but sometimes people's signals aren't working mm-hmm. and that's where i i sit probably on the opposite side of the fence to you on the equation of well it's all on the individual if someone's signals and aren't working and that their brain isn't you know giving them the right feedback that's really hard to override that takes a lot of mental effort and in a society where we've got a lot going on already like i think that's that's tough i was 330 pounds when i was 39 years old I was there was a discussion of fitting me with a pacemaker, and when I heard that discussion, I I actually had just sold my company because I was sick. I had a dysrhythmia, which is different than arrhythmia. The right and left side of my heart weren't beating in sync any longer, so I was being told that I was going to have to put a pacemaker in. And I have parents that live to eighty and ninety. Uh, I come from good stock. My father always told me, "You come from good stock," and I thought, "How did I get here?" And then I. I kind of took inventory of my life, you know. I was running a business I hated. I was eating way too much. 
like uh, I mean, like grotesque amounts of food. Um, I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't exercising. I wasn't hardly moving except for work, and I had three children. And so I looked at my life and I said, you know, I made myself this way. This I did this to myself, and that means I can fix it. And that was. I read a, a book by Deepak Chopra called Ageless Beauty, Timeless Mind. The only passage I can remember from the whole book was where he described the turnover of cells. You know, bones take the longest. This tissue is fast. These days, six days on. And I thought, okay, I made my heart sick. How can I replace those broken cells with good cells? And then and that was my journey. I learned about weightlifting. I learned about diet and nutrition and sleep. You know, I had horrible sleep habits. I fixed them. And I'm not on any medication. I mean, I'm on testosterone. That's it. I am. Uh, but that, I, I even stopped taking thyroid hormone. My my doctor gave me thyroid hormone. And I thought, I wonder if I can live without this. And I just stopped. And my, I'm working fine now. So um, I, 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 think, I, I, I think I've been there. I think that fork in the road. Yeah. I think that fork in the road, Carl, happens for a lot of people. It's Some people go down, I think, what your path of the – well, I'm going to change this. And, and I see a lot of people that have type 2 diabetes that don't want medication. And sometimes that is to the detriment of themselves because right. they've they've had type 2 diabetes for a lot longer than they knew about. That Their pancreas isn't, isn't doing well and they really would have a better quality of life with medication. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, medication is not always bad. But some people can can really turn it around. We know a lot of the research, um, especially coming out of, you know, Roy Taylor and Mike Lean's group, that we can reverse diabetes. But those people that are that are likely to be able to reverse their diabetes have had their diabetes for less than six years. Mm, you know, we're not sense. talking about people that have had it for a longer a longer period of time. Um, and often that news of, oh, well, you've got this disease, uh, in, in my perspective, is demotivating. People are like, oh, well, I've got that. I, I don't want to change my life. I like the way that I'm just have to deal with. Yes. That. Versus that. Versus versus the. Oh, shoot! Th- that's not where I wanted to be. Um, I'm going to fix this. In fact, I interviewed a, a woman from the UK. Gosh, probably 2010, 2009, who published a study. It was an interesting study. It looked at the number of times a person had to almost die from high-risk behavior before they changed that. It's three times. Like like heroin addicts or pick a, pick a, pick a high-risk behavior that puts you in peril and now they have to save you. And we all say, oh, God, save me and I'll change my ways. I'll give up smoking. I'll, I'll stop drinking. But then they get, they get by the first time. They go back and they do it again. They think, oh, well, you know, I, I, that wasn't so bad. I turned out okay. I can start... And the third time is when they die. They go back the third time and that's when they die. And I, I was fascinated by that because I made such a fast decision to like completely change my life. And in fact, it led to my divorce. My audience knows about this. My, my ex-wife told me she liked me better when I was fat. <laughs> I'd be dead right now if I stayed fat. But it's, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, there's a lot of things that keep you from doing what you need to do in life. And it's, it's hard. It is hard. I agree. And, and, and that's, I mean, a lot of the patients that I'm working with or participants that have type two diabetes, they'll often say to me, Oh, my, my doctor said, you know, I had prediabetes. I wish I'd take it more seriously. 
Mm. I, I wish I'd done something about it then. Um, and, and, you know, to be fair, pre-diabetes is very difficult to diagnose. So a lot of people miss that stage and mm-hmm. they go from thinking that everything is fine to realizing that, that it's not in terms of their, their, you know, glucose insulin regulation. Um, so yeah. And when you're in an environment where like, you're, you know, we're, we're part of a, a group mentality as humans. We, we like to do things that fit in with everybody else. And so if your group or your, you know, which might be your family and your friends, et cetera, and you're saying, Oh, well, I can't do those behaviors anymore, which is, you know, going and eating those types of foods, you know, celebrating in that type of way, you're then removing yourself from the group. That's really hard to do. And then I'm assuming that's the sort of, you know, divorce type of situation where you're changing a lot of behaviors and you're then very different to the person that you were, you were living with before. And I think that's where it's very difficult for on an individual basis. Once you are diagnosed with a, a chronic disease that's related to metabolism to make the changes in a supported way. And there are are a lot of people that do, and especially I'm going to be really sexist here, but, you know, men are often, you know, supported by wives or their partners that are, you know, that means the partner has to change behaviors like, and again, being sexist, cooking, providing meals, Mm -hmm. et cetera, to help that other person. Um, Does that always happen? No, no. In fact, in fact, I had to become militant because my ex-wife didn't want to, eat what I ate. I had, I cooked all my own food and I sat down with the family and I ate, but I was eating what I wanted to eat because I was, I looked at it like saving my own life. And it probably was. And and the participants that we've had in our, we're doing some work with people with type two diabetes, time restricted eating over, you know, a longer period of time, looking at it as, as a more sustainable intervention. And those people whose families are on board and are willing to make the small changes to, to help the person that's on the intervention do better. Now, is that just because they're, they're you know, metabolically cut out to be that? No, that that's that's a, a social interaction. The right. people whose families go, oh, well, you can do that. We're just going to carry on doing what we're doing because we don't have diabetes and we don't have to worry about it. That, that, that makes it really hard for that person. And that is I, my perspective. Society in general, when we're talking about uh, obesity, type 2 diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, well, I don't have it, so I don't have to change it. Uh, I want to take one last commercial break, and I want to come back and talk to you about this new phenomenon um, of body positive at the same time uh, the idea of obesity being healthy. Uh, I want to get your opinion on that, okay? I uh, stay yep. stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Superhuman Radio. I promise it'll be interesting.
I've said numerous times that B-Strong BFR bands are as effective, if not more effective, than anabolic steroids. And as someone who has used anabolic steroids for many years and used B-Strong BFR bands, I know what I'm talking about. You will see changes in musculature in days and weeks using B-Strong BFR bands. And without any of the risks to your health associated with anabolic steroid use, go to shrnetwork.biz slash B-Strong, that's B-S-T-R-O-N-G, and use code SHR15 to save 15% off. I guarantee you will not be disappointed in the results of using the B-Strong bands. Check them out. Merrick Health is a premium telehealth platform that connects customers with partnered providers from the comfort of your home. Merrick provides concierge service with your very own patient care provider as your health advocate. You'll go over all your needs and goals from improving sexual function, hair loss prevention, increased muscle, fat loss, and overall improved performance. Prescribed treatment options can be ordered and shipped directly to you if you meet the requirements. All from the comfort of your home. Go to shrnetwork.biz slash Merrick Health. That's M-A-R-E-K-H-E-A-L-T. TH and order your comprehensives and get 10% off with code SHR. Don't forget to add the lab analysis to have results reviewed with potential over-the-counter supplements or treatment recommendations. That's shrnetwork.biz slash health and use code SHR at checkout. Or order your own desired labs with code SHR and get 10% off your first lab order. Dogs should be powered by fat and protein, not carbs. That's why Visionary Pet makes low-carb, ketogenic dog food for dogs of all breeds and life stages. From kibble to freeze-dried and even low-carb treats, all Visionary Pet recipes are very low-carb, ketogenic, and made with 100% real meat protein. Shop now and use code SHR for 20% off your first order today. Your dog deserves the lifelong benefits of optimal nutrition. Make the switch to Visionary and see why smart dogs eat low-carb. Never before has a product been so appropriately named as Botanic Tonics Feel Free. This plant-based elixir combines a variety of different effective compounds, all from raw plant materials that at different doses provide you with completely different experiences. A third of a bottle puts you in the zone and makes you very focused and is ideal for a non-stimulating pre-workout. It also has a mild analgesic effect for us older lifters who have soreness and little pains and aches that keep us from training as ferociously as we want. A half a bottle will create a mild euphoric effect that will allow you to forego consuming alcohol but still be socially lubricated and have fun. I have never had a product deliver on its name the way Botanic Tonics Feel Free does and I won't ever be without it and you shouldn't either. Go to shrnetwork.biz slash feel free and use the code SHR40 for 40% off your first order. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Remember those rectangular toaster pastries you used to love when you were a kid? Well, Legendary Foods has just made them better. The new cake-style tasty pastry is like nothing you've ever had before. With 20 grams of high-quality protein and less than one gram of sugar, you'll feel like you're cheating, but you're not. Go to shrnetwork.biz slash legendary and use the code SHR10 to save to save 10% off your purchase of tasty pastries. Now available in cookies and cream, red velvet cake, birthday cake, blueberry, strawberry, brown sugar cinnamon, and hot fudge sundae. Go to shrnetwork.biz slash legendary and use code SHR10 today. You're listening to the Superhuman Channel. Don't hate us because we feel good. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Evelyn Parr. And now we're talking more about type 2 diabetes and obesity, which is 
really the wheelhouse that she spends her time in. So there's a trend today to normalize obesity, and it's called body positive. And we see lots of models. And, you know, God bless them. Look, I hated being fat. I didn't like the way I looked. When I took the kids to the pool, I wore big baggy shirts. I didn't like being fat. And I wasn't going to say, oh, I love being fat to kind of like a a, a cognitive dissonance. Um, The truth was I didn't like being fat and my health suffered because I was fat for so long. Now we have this body positive movement and it's, it's being supported by people who are coming out and saying, you can be obese and still be healthy. And my analogy that I talk about on the show is like, if I'm on, if I'm standing on the roof of a hundred story building, and I jump. By the time I get to the 50th floor, I'm still alive. Even by the time I get to the 85th floor, I'm still alive. But I'm going to hit the ground and I'm going to die. It's pretty, pretty obvious. And so saying that, oh, look, I'm still alive. I'm still alive. I'm, oh, it's, see, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't kill. Boom. That's the way I look at uh, the normalization of obesity when it comes to health. What do you think? I mean, I don't disagree with you in terms of the metabolically healthy obesity is more likely to go towards a unhealthy phenotype uh, in that there might be metabolic disease lurking. But I've also measured a heck of a lot of people that have obesity that have no metabolic syndrome, you know, no high cholesterol, no high blood sugar, mm-hmm. no high blood pressure. Um, so in, and in that sense, you go, well, something is different here, but are they outliers? Are they outliers? Um, and I, I think the, the main message of obesity is bad and you know, the, it turns into well, fat people are bad. They must be lazy. They're, they're all of these things. I don't think that helps anybody. Uh, and I guess your counter argument is, well, it doesn't help them to also tell them that they're totally fine and don't need to do anything about it, right? Mm-hmm. There's got to be some, you know, midway point where we recognize and we've got a lot of science that, you know, obesity contributes to a lot of diseases. How, how long that trajectory is, is very individual, you know, is very individualized. There, there are some people that that, that you know, elastic band is going to pop and, and they've got, you know, heart disease very quickly versus others who seem to have a longer elastic band on that. Um, but how do we get to a society that's actually supporting people rather than putting people down? And I think that the, as you would call it, the, you know, the fat positive movement is, is in some way a small step towards accepting that, that everybody is different, but we've got to be supportive. And I come back to what I mentioned before. If you've got people around you that are not willing to help you make the changes that might need to be made. And if you've got a society that's just labeling you as bad, like that's not going to inspire anybody to, to do anything. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think being afraid to die motivates a lot of people, but I just, I just, I understand that there are people out there who are considered obese and they don't have high blood pressure and you know, their blood sugar isn't ridiculous, but how many 600-pound people do you see alive at 80 or even 70? You know, I, I know – look, I know I can be a jerk. I know that. I have no filter and I say what I think and what I think is not always right. Uh, I've been called asshole more than once in my life. 
But there's certain things that I kind of feel like you just got to go, okay, wait a minute. You know, who are we fooling here? Um, do you know that Singapore cured childhood obesity in two years? Do you know that story? No. The government started a campaign to ridicule your fat child. They want the parents to point out that their, fa- their child is fat. Now, will we end up with a, uh, a, a bumper crop of, of mass murderers? I don't know. But they cured uh, childhood obesity in two years. And the but is whole- that the child or the, or the parent? The childhood obesity. Yeah, no, but is that is that caused by the child or the parent? The obesity, the parent, most likely, by condoning and yeah. letting the kid eat like an animal. Yeah, no, no, I get it. But but you understand, like, in order for the child not to eat, the parents had to stop feeding them. They knew that that was part of the campaign because the parents were enabling the child. But I kind of feel like really important things in life, life and death things, we have to be brutally honest. We have to talk the truth because... It doesn't do any good to tell people who are three, four, five hundred pounds that they, it's okay. It's it's okay. I mean, unless unless you don't care about them. Like if I don't care about somebody, I, I, yeah, go ahead. You know, do what you want. Shoot heroin. But if I care about somebody, I got to be honest and say, you know, th- this is not going to end well for you. It wasn't going to end well for me. I, you know, but that. But they've got to care about themselves, Carl. Like whether you care about, like they've got to care about making the change themselves. Like that, that like at an individual level, someone's got to make or have the ability to be enable those processes to 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 make change. And change is hard. No one likes change. I know. I and know. especially if you've got an environment that is not conducive to change. So you know the. And I always say, if we were talking about, if we talk about food and about energy intake just for the energy, like we would be, it would be a completely different environment mm-hmm. than the environment we have where food is social, food is celebratory, food is, uh, you know, associated with our family and how we do things. And so if, if that is the, is the momentum, it's really hard to put a break on that as an, as an individual. And what we're saying here is it's the individual or you're doing it when there's a whole lot of things that are happening in society that mean that it's really difficult for that person to do so. Right. And one is people are really stigmatized. Like, and, and I, I see it in, in others that are around me that, you know, are in healthier looking bodies. And I'll put it that way because you don't know that somebody who has a BMI under 25 is healthy. Yeah. That's right? the thing. Yeah. Like they yeah. might. They might look healthy, but they really might not be. They, so right. So if I know people in my circle that are in healthier bodies that will, will lay judgment really quickly on somebody and you don't know that individual circumstances. Right. As a whole, as a society, we are bigger. That is not good. I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, dress around that or dance around that, that topic. But how we change that, I think that having, some positivity of, you know, you can be in a bigger body and you move more, you know, and maybe you still enjoy your alcohol or you enjoy your food and it's, it, you know, adding to that bit of adiposity, but you're still moving. You can get yourself upstairs. I couldn't care less. It's when you can't move that I think that there's a, a real, a real issue. And I've seen that in people that are lean yeah. and young university students we've tested that cannot do a bike test to where they should be able to, to meet just normal ranges of aerobic fitness and and probably they couldn't lift a normal amount of weight either in terms of weight you know resistance training and i think that's a real issue 
I mean, you have twins, you told me, and now you got big biceps, right? <laughs> uh, well, yes. I, I, I mean, my resistance training has lessened with the less time available, but I, I lift those two um, fairly regularly because, you know, there's times where they don't want to walk and want to be lifted. Um, and, and, you know, that's an activity of, of daily living. And we've changed lots of activities of daily living. I was also saying, you, I get my groceries delivered to my door. I mean, that, that, you know, limits the, you know, carrying of things around that is part of an activity of daily living for a lot of people that might be one of their only resistance training activities. Opportunities, like right? We, we're changed. We're, you know, we've changed our society a lot. You know, I live in, I live in Melbourne in Australia. I ride my bike to and from work. I've just been to Europe for a, a conference, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Everybody is on a bike. You're abnormal if you don't have a bike. Yes. And when you talk about active commuting, they're like, oh, yeah, that's what we do. And that's not actually counted when somebody's being assessed for physical activity in that part of the world, whereas here it's so different. You know, we're not moving a lot to get where we go because, you know, I could I could walk 500 metres to a train that could take me right almost to my workplace, but I choose to go on my bike, which takes me, you know, 25, 30 minutes each way. I'm, I'm getting an hour of exercise. That's, That's great. That's a choice that I, that I make, but it's a very abnormal choice. In today's society. In, 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 society. in fact, yeah. In fact, I wrote an article years ago that the p- French paradox was that, th- that they walk to and from the restaurant. Uh, you know, we know that walking after a meal causes amazing blood sugar management better than metformin. And like if you're walking to the restaurant, you're stimulating all of these hormones that are related to exercise and you eat. We also know that what your body does with that food is very different than if you were just slothfully sitting around for two hours and then went and and sat down and ate. So the French paradox, I would submit, isn't the wine. It's not the cheese and not the fact that they smoke cigarettes. It's the fact that they walk everywhere. Yeah, and and that postprandial post meal activity is super important, and it's completely fading out of our society. We don't have to move very much to get anywhere. So you know, we're going from a restaurant into a car or you know, onto public transport, and at home to sit in front of TV or Netflix and and carry on. And we're really doing we're less active in the evening. If you look at a normal day's activity and you look at those three main meals, we have the we have half the number of steps after our evening meal than we do after our lunch or breakfast meal. Quite simply because our earlier in our day we have to be up and we have to be moving. Um, and and also because we we choose more of those sedentary behaviors at the end of the day. That's also when our body's most insulin resistant. So and our largest meal is at dinner. It tends to be in most societies. We eat them, eat the most at the end of the day. You know, some of the societies where that's not the case and lunch is the biggest meal, I think is probably the way to go. But again, that's a big, that's a big shift in, in people's norms to change. My po- my post workout meal is my biggest meal. It's my, it's my second meal. I get up in the morning. I have bone broth fortified with 30 grams of, um, beef collagen and 30 grams of beef isolate. So my first meal in the morning is a drinkable 60 gram of protein. My second meal is steak and eggs, six eggs and a nice size steak. And that's after I work out. My third meal, like today, is going to be a pound of beef and that's it. And my fourth meal before at around six o'clock is a redo of that bone broth fortified with protein. And, and I, and I, I just started doing that because I sleep better when I don't eat solid food. Like you said, you know, my routine was, uh, uh, eat at six, sleep at nine. 
But like you said, some foods, like if I, when I had salmon the other night for my last meal, I could feel it. It wasn't gone out of my stomach and I was going to bed. I was like, this sucks. So I thought, you know what? My last meal is going to be that drinkable protein drink and that's it. And I go to sleep and I'm on empty. And there's still a bit of a lot to do in terms of eating, timing of eating and sleep and sleep quality and that and that relationship. Because often when we've had some participants where we're saying, well, you're doing, you know, you're doing time restricted eating for this intervention, um, which means you can't eat and, you know, past this time. They then self-report to us that they go to bed earlier because they've got less to do. You know, mm-hmm. or the, and that they're feeling better when they go to bed because they're not going to bed, you know, an hour after eating. They're going to bed after, you know, three hours after eating sort of thing. So it's, it's changing other behaviors rather than just that eating time and which might be just, you know, our focus is on glucose, but it might be, you know, bigger than that. I think there's still a lot we can look at in terms of appetite, sleep quality, um, fullness or all of those other other measures that we really have only just touched the surface on um and you know we we discussed earlier our ancestors you know time restricted eating is really aligning with when you know light is available which is when you know primitive humans would have only been able to eat you know you can't eat at five o'clock in the morning because you couldn't see unless you start a fire right right so i think that's the way that our body's been designed. Yes. We've moved our society so that, you know, we can have light all the time. We can have food all the time and we can get anywhere without really moving all of the time. Mm-hmm. Does that help our body? Not really. Um, and a great example, a study from uh, an American lab, the author escapes me, where they took a group of university students uh, camping for a week, took away all electronic devices. So we've only got either campfire or um, sunlight and their melatonin, the time of melatonin onset. So when melatonin starts to be released at the end of the day, shifted considerably earlier to align with when uh, the sun is going down or shortly thereafter, which, you know, obviously has an effect on, on sleep, but we're wired where our society is wired that, that we're all the time now. And, and that's not, that's not good. That's not healthy. And, and if anyone is counting, my daily protein intake is around 280, 290 grams of protein in those little meals. They're, they're not, they're not laborious to eat either. Uh, Julianne Van Valkenburg, uh, asks if there was anybody in the study on dialysis. Um, because, no. I mean, they lose protein every time they have to, uh, go through dialysis right they lose protein yeah that that would be a really complex condition to include in in a study like this where we i guess we were starting with uh you know proof of proof of concept um and and then the people with type twos we're often working with uh you'd probably say a healthier profile of, of type 2 diabetes they're not on insulin um they tend to be you know earlier in their um in their diagnosis or since their diagnosis um quite simply because by the time you're getting down the pathway of more medications and, and needing insulin you're at a more advanced disease state where diet and exercise no doubt are going to provide a benefit but less of an impact than you know those medications and requiring possibly a greater intervention than what we're talking about here in terms of time restricted eating and 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 making those um, smaller changes that might lead to other mm-hmm. health promoting behaviors 
Dr. Parr, thank you so much for getting up early and being on the show. I know that was, uh, it, you know, it's, when we first connected, it was very early in the morning. So thanks for making the time for the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to to chat with you today. I've, yeah. I've enjoyed this. And and if you have uh, new information coming out, you know, reach out to Elisa because we wait for studies to show up, but you may be able to tell us ahead of time, like we're about to publish a study and let's get you back on the show. Okay. Would love that. Thanks, okay. Carl. Take care. All right, that's it for today. Uh, Don't forget, share the show. Whenever you share the show, you may be helping somebody save their lives, give them the motivation motivation to change their lives. Uh, You never know who you're going to help. And we'll see you tomorrow with more Superhuman. By the way, Friday, Porter Cottrell will be on the show. Porter is a good friend of mine. Uh, He competed at the Olympia uh, back in the 90s. He was an amazing bodybuilder. Wait till you see what he looks like in his 60s. The guy looks amazing. And it's just more evidence that you don't have to grow old if you really don't. You can be 64 years old, but you don't have to be an old 64. All right, we'll see you tomorrow with more Superhuman Radio. Thanks for being here today.